I've been hanging out with folks at a hospital that are pretty sick. Uh, they wouldn't be there if they weren't, but I've been praying a lot more in recent years than preaching. Uh, but I really thank you for the opportunity, the elders, uh, give me the uh, privilege and a, and a great pleasure to speak forth the word of life to you. And uh, as we just sang a few minutes ago, this is my heart for the Lord and, and for you today. And it's very simple. Redeeming love has been my theme and will be until I die. And isn't that yours as well? So we're here as friends in Christ, as brothers and sisters in Christ. And I'd like to bring you uh, the word today from 1 Samuel chapter 17. This is a, a David and Goliath uh, passage. You know the story well, probably from childhood. Uh, perhaps we should sing that little ditty, you know, <laughs> only a boy named David. No, we won't, because uh, <laughs> we'll go crazy with that sling thing. But uh, <clears throat> David uh, is not a boy. He's a teenager becoming a man very quick. Uh, he's already been anointed by Samuel, and uh, the Spirit of God has rushed upon his life. So he's living in the power of the Holy Spirit day by day, growing in God's grace up on the hills with the sheep. And as you read through David's Psalms, especially as you're crying out for the Lord's deliverance or blessing in your life, you'll often notice that David is consumed with this phrase, the steadfast love of the Lord. And that word, steadfast love, essentially means God is our deliverer. He's our loving deliverer. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And with me you can say it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have everlasting life. And David speaks often about this deliverer, uh, the Lord God, throughout the Psalms. And Today, we're going to see that in, in the context of 1 Samuel 17, David becomes a deliverer, a lot like his, his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we're going to be moving through this passage, and if you've already looked at your bulletin, I'm going to do what Daryl did a couple of weeks back. He, he did his sermon with three scenes. It's kind of like the Goldilocks story, you know, Goldilocks goes into this house in the woods, and uh, three bears are not there. And Goldilocks goes through some uh, chairs and porridge and then beds, and we all can do the chronology in that very simple story. But there's a chronology here in this Paris passage as we see the, the Lord developing David as Israel's next deliverer. So we saw last week, or the week before rather, we saw how the Spirit left Saul. And Saul is becoming more delusional, perhaps schizophrenic. He's a very confused man, but he's not a leader. He's not a leader anymore in terms of what he should be to, to the people of Israel. But David is going to be raised up as the new leader, the new redeemer, the new deliverer of the people of God. When I was a very young boy, uh, my dad bought a farm. And... Uh, he was a Navy pilot, and he had been moving around the country a bit, and he decided that he'd buy a farm. And uh, he was stationed at the Johnsville Naval Air Station, 
and uh, flew out of there. But the farm, being about 10, 10 minutes away or so, uh, had enough acreage to have some animals. And remember one day I was down by the pond, and, and some of you younger children, <clears throat> or when you were a younger child, if you're hearing this, you probably had a couple of animals at least, or a few, that you were afraid of. And as I was down the pond watching some of the chickens and the ducks and, and so on, I was convinced that a gander was going to chase me. <laughs> so I, I ran and I looked behind me and I, I thought, or at least in my mind, my imagination, uh, there was no way of getting away from this, this duck, this gander. So I ran into an empty chicken coop and I stayed there and I wouldn't come out because I really believed, my, my imagination was, was telling me, don't leave, that gander's waiting for you just outside the door. And I waited, and I waited, and I was scared, and I heard a voice, and it was my father's Navy voice. He had been an aircraft carrier guy, and he said, Dave! <laughs> I wouldn't say anything, and I heard, Dave! <clears throat> And I kept quiet because I thought if I spoke, that duck somehow would get me. Well, finally the door opened and it was my daddy. And I was not only relieved, but dad asked me, what are you doing in here? And I said, well, the duck, there's a gander, there's a, it's chasing me. And dad looked at me and said, let's do this. And he grabbed me by the hand. And you know what he did? He walked me right down to the pond where all the geese were and some chickens and, and so on. And he said, watch this, son. And Dad let go of my hand, and he began to just wave his arms and yell and scream, and all the, all the geese flew away. My daddy was my deliverer. Now, there were many other times where Dad became that to me. Um, Michael Milton, in boy, you got to read this book. Uh, Mike, I'm sorry you're not here today doing this sermon, but Michael Milton wrote a little book about his life with the Lord up to this time, and it's called What God Starts, God Completes. And this is the story of, of when he was a young boy and things that he was afraid of, but things that also gave him confidence. And he had an Aunt Eva who became his deliverer in life, in a sense, uh, his point of safety. And if you haven't read the book, uh, please take a look at this at some point as you, we continue to hear from Michael Milton. It's a wonderful story of how God delivers his people, no matter how bleak and difficult our lives might become, even at the very beginning of life when things look pretty dismal. So as we look at David today, we're going to be thinking of how our Father in Heaven is in the rescue mission business. Uh, he's out to rescue his people. And as we look at Saul's army in chapter 17, Saul's army is at it again, battling it out again with the, the Philistines. And going back to Daryl's sermon sometime uh, ago with chapter 14, you might remember that Jonathan wanted to go after the Philistines and a garrison of Phil Philistines, and he went at it with the Lord's help and with not much more help than that, just a few men. And it was like saying to somebody, hey, there's a hornet's nest. You know, and we had hornet's nests on the farm, uh, but 
I was told to stay away from them, and I respected my father's uh, word on that. But Jonathan decides to stick a big stick in this hornet's nest and stir up the, the Philistines, and he does. And they're going nuts over what Jonathan did. And they wind up a few chapters later in this valley of Elah, and they bring out their big guns, at least one big gun called Goliath. And you know that story. We're not going to go into all the scripture here, but I want you to see what happens in this first scene. And in the first scene, I'm pointing out that, first of all, David, who will become Israel's deliverer, he will not become discouraged, particularly as Saul was. He's not going to be fearful like the army had become at this point. There wasn't a man that really wanted to go into the fight with Goliath when Goliath, for 40 days, began to taunt and continued to taunt the, the armies of God swearing at them, cursing them by his gods and cursing their God. And no one came forward. David is given a little, little uh, mission chore by his dad, Jesse, to take some sandwiches and cheese, a little bit more than that, to his brothers who were facing things off with the Philistines. And David goes on this errand. When he gets into the Valley of Elah, about a 15-mile hike or so from Bethlehem, he is, is talking to the soldiers, sort of talking a little bit about what's going on, and he hears Goliath. And he asks the simple question, uh, what's going on with all this? Why isn't anybody out there at this point, or why aren't we moving against the army of the, the Philistines? And David has an older brother named Eliab, You'll remember in chapter 16, perhaps, when, when Daryl preached about how man looks on the outer appearance and God looks on the heart. Samuel has come to anoint God's chosen king, new king. And with Jesse, he's been collecting the sons, and every son is not making, making the cut, so to speak. Or they're, not, they're not fit as far as God's concerned, and after going through seven boys, uh, Samuel asked the question, are these, are these all the sons you have? And then sort of uh, almost by, by a, a, a shameful admission, well, I have one more son, and uh, he's on the, the back hills. He's a shepherd, and Samuel says, go, go get him. And when Samuel sees David, the Lord tells Samuel, this is the one. This is the one that I want for my king. So David was chosen out of all the sons. Now Eliab, who is the oldest son, may have had a sense of entitlement. Wait, I'm the oldest? <laughs> I'm really in line first. Why not me? That may have been happening when Eliab in this chapter gets angry at his younger brother's comments about the battle and about his interest in going after Goliath and so on. So if you take your scriptures today and turn to chapter 17, let's look at this passage or turn on your scriptures. 1 Samuel 17, and David has come to the valley. He's talked a little bit about the battle scene and so on 
He knows what will benefit whoever goes out to fight Goliath. And then Eliab in verse 28. Now Eliab's eldest brother heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. You're just coming down here to sort of gawk at what's going on, and uh, why aren't you back where you belong? And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. So David is getting some information about the battle. David is sorting through things. And here comes Eliab. And it's an angry verbal assault. And David, rather than getting discouraged at this point and sort of ducking down with his head and kind of going back to the sheep, David continues to kind of get into this whole, whole issue of why aren't we fighting this giant at this point. So he's not going to be distracted by Eliab. It's Goliath's blasphemy that David is concerned with. David heard this. David is not going to stand there and take it anymore. Sort of like a, a Popeye comment, you know, I can't stand it and I can't stand it no more. David's tired of what he's hearing from Goliath. Now, quickly, David goes to Saul, and people escort him to Saul, because David is looking like a fighter, ready to get going. And Saul has some doubts and reservations. So let's go to verse 31 for a moment through 38. 31 through 38. When the words that David spoke were heard, they were repeated. They repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go out and fight this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear, he took a lamb from the flock. And I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. <laughs> you go. I'm not going. Nobody else is going. You go. Well, Saul, Saul didn't expect him necessarily to go just, just out there without some weaponry and here Saul thinks, well, David, you need a little bit more than what you've got with you. So then Saul clothed David with his armor, put a helmet on him with a coat of mail, and David strapped his sword over his armor. And he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. And David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. 
So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. Saul's perspective is that, David, uh, the Lord, your God, is not enough. You need more. You need my stuff. You need my equipment. And, you know, there are, are folks that can tell us, well, Jesus is okay, but he's just not enough. You need Jesus and. You need Jesus and this. And David, for a minute, tries on the, the larger helmet and the weaponry that is placed before him and the protection, but he realized, I can't even walk with this stuff. And some of us aren't walking perhaps well with the Lord today because we've got all this other stuff that's just, you know, it's loading us down. And you may know what it is. Uh, you just don't need it. Just throw it aside. The Lord's enough. And uh, David makes that clear. Uh, I, haven't, I haven't really prepared for a battle like this with the equipment that you're going to put on me. But David knows what to do with a sling. And uh, Blair, I wish you just were up here right now and you could spend 10 minutes on how a sling works, right? Uh, I'm sure your boy has been <laughs> working one of those or wants to. Some of you remember Indiana Jones in one of those first movies where an Arab is faced off with him and the Arab has this big old big old sword, and Indiana Jones realizes that in the Raiders of the Lost Ark, no way I'm going against him. Just pulls out a gun and boom, shoots him. Now, a sling could hurl a stone upwards of 400 plus yards. Some slingers could get a stone further than an archer could get an arrow. And for David to go up to Goliath with this sling is like taking a 45 caliber gun and just shooting him right in the head. But Goliath doesn't get it yet. He doesn't even know what's going on. Uh, five stones, do you think David picked up five stones because he thought he'd miss? Some have suggested, maybe this is sanctified imagination, that there were some brothers, there were some other giants out there that didn't come forward with Goliath. Maybe he's getting ready for another giant. If you pass into 2 Samuel, there are more giants that the, the Israelites will kill. One giant actually has a whole lot of fingers, it's like six fingers on one hand, six fingers on the other, and he has six toes on each feet. And this is kind of a weird giant, but these are giants that are probably left over from the days when Joshua and Caleb went out to spy out the Holy Land in the book of Numbers. And some of you remember those stories. Uh, Joshua, Caleb, we'll go in, we'll get him, even the giants. And some said, we're like grasshoppers in their eyes, or in our own eyes. We're like little grasshoppers, and we don't think we should fight. We could get hurt. Yeah, it's the land of milk and honey, but we'll be, uh, we'll be like little grasshoppers. Well, the grasshopper mentality is not here with David. And I've heard it said that David looked at the giant and thought, he's not too big to hit. He is too big to miss. He's just too big to miss. So David is not going to get discouraged by Saul or by Eliab, by Saul's doubts and reservations or by Eliab's uh, just sibling rivalry here. But David's going to move on into the battle. And as he does in scene two, 
David will not be despised for who he is. Trash talk begins in this fight, and it begins very quickly. And frankly, you don't want to trash talk someone who's holding a staff. Remember Moses and his staff? Mike Milton gave a wonderful message on the staff of David. Well, he has a staff in his hand. David's carrying that staff, and shepherds could do significant things with a staff in terms of warding off uh, the wolves from the sheep and so on. But David also has this sling, but he has a few choice words for Goliath, and Goliath has some for him. So let's look, look for a moment at what is happening here in this confrontation. Again, David in scene two is not going to be thrown off by someone who despises him. And the Philistine moved toward and came near to David with the shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth. The word disdain simply means he belittled him. He kind of looked at him like, who are you? What are you doing away from your sheep? He saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and, and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? Making fun of his staff and, and perhaps the rod that he may have seen. The Philistine cursed David by his gods. Not a good idea. Remember Dargon, the fish god? I think Goliath was not a very good theologian. He didn't remember his own historical theology. Uh, for some months... The ark had been in the hands of the Philistines, if you go back in history, and it wasn't a good thing for the Philistines. At one point, they thought the ark of God, the holy of holies, would, would um, be something if they put it in their Philistine temple that would give them some kind of power, perhaps over the Israelites, but uh, the fish god falls face forward, head comes off, also... The, the arms or the hands. The thing is just a powerful piece, un, a, not a very powerful piece of stone. And uh, the ark is continuing to bring problems and plagues among the Philistines, and they just want to get rid of this thing. And, and uh, he is trying to defy the God of Israel while he knows what the God of Israel has already done to his people to really give them some headaches. Now, he won't have a headache for long, and you know why. Let's continue to read the story. So, so David said to the Philistine, you, well, let me back up. He says, I, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear, by the way, the end of that spear weighed upwards of 15 pounds, the tip of it, big spear. Goliath had about 125 pounds worth of protection on his chest that went down uh, across his belly and to his knees. Uh, Goliath had a lot of reinforcement uh, to protect himself, a lot of battle armor. So David says, you come to me with your sword and your spear and your javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. 
Remember Joshua before he went into the battle at Jericho? And uh, the battle plans were sort of drawn up, walk around the city so many days, shout at the end of it all, and the walls would come tumbling down. And Joshua is facing off one day with someone he's never quite met like this before, and it's a battle commander. And it happens to be the Lord of Hosts who has just shown up in a Christophany and made it clear to Joshua that I'll be leading this battle before you think you're taking charge. Just follow my orders. And here David understands his historical theology. He knows the redemptive history of Israel, and he knows what it is to come against an army in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom this giant has defiled. And then David has the boldness in the Lord to say this, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies, not just yours, but the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. And we know as believers we don't, we don't fight against the gates of hell, so to speak, with carnal weapons, but our weapons are spiritual. We wear Christian armor, Ephesians 6, 10 and following. So in this conversation, it's really sort of a, sort of a uh, life and death confrontation, not just a conversation. David is not going to be despised for who he is, either as a shepherd or for his age. David was not yet 20 years of age. If he was, 10, if he was at least 20, he could have been conscripted into the army of Israel. But in Numbers chapter 1, go back into that part of the Old Testament, you have to be about 20 years of age at least to be a soldier. If you just got married, uh, you could have a year with your new wife uh, before you went into battle. So the Philistine picks up on a couple things. This kid with sticks, maybe he smells a little bit manured. Maybe the wind is blowing in the direction of Goliath, but David is taking it uh, a little bit from this, uh, this kind of trash talk. But David goes back into the fray of, of conversation with him, of trash talk, and basically says, you'll be mine at the end of the day, because this is what God will do to you. And after that conversation is uh, not quite over, David starts to move, and he takes the first move. And as he does, <clears throat> look at what happens. When the Philistine came, he arose and he came and drew near to meet David. David ran quickly, and I believe he was running before the Philistine began to take his initial steps. David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine, and David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine in his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. 
When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath. They just ran them back home, but as they overtook the Philistines, they destroyed one by one many of the Philistines that had come against Israel. So as we see David fighting against the Philistines at this point and winning the battle for them, and then Israel following up on David's uh, victory over Goliath, this is essentially going to be David's battle uh, as, as the Philistines continue to come against Israel. But essentially at this point, the Philistines are on the run forever. They'll never quite come back and try to gain the higher ground that they once had before. Remember, the people of Israel lived in the hill country. The Philistines were on the seacoast, and whenever they fought, it was always an uphill battle. And, and, and it wasn't a battle that they ever got very far in. But at this point in, in the scene, David, who's too young to be a soldier, who probably should be with the sheep, he's a shepherd after all, uh, here is the one that God chooses to deliver the people of Israel. And sometimes we're not, we're not looking at the gifts and graces of our brethren in terms of what God has really done in their lives. Certainly Eliab doesn't see what the Lord was doing, although Eliab saw what the Lord was doing in principle. So scene three, David will not be defeated. And I want to read this small comment about God's perspective on David. And this is 1 Samuel 16.1. Then the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. I have provided a king among his sons. And this king is a good shepherd. He is a shepherd that takes care of his sheep. He's a shepherd that is concerned about Saul's army and their lack of morale to fight their good fight of faith. But more so, David is concerned about the honor of the Lord of hosts. And when he conquers, he conquers with a stone and with the spirit, an unlikely uh, weapon an unlikely moment in his life. Now David will soon face other giants. Um, Wendy is taking a, a, a Bible study course with some of the ladies in this church on the life of David. And we talked a little bit about some of my preparation and uh, Wendy made the comment that Beth Moore had made about David's life ahead and Beth Moore makes this point that Goliath, while he was a giant, wasn't the most significant giant that David would face. For the next 10 years just about, David's going to be facing Saul day in and day out. Saul is becoming his enemy. Saul hates him. Saul's intention is to kill him. And is there anybody here that has anybody coming after you day in and day out? 
you have to look over your shoulder and think, hmm, I better watch myself. Uh, I better protect myself more. And it happens for 10 years, and you're always living with a little bit of uh, fear or a little bit of intimidation, uh, a sense of this is going to get me and catch up with me. Well, David hides in caves. At one point, uh, 400 men find him at the cave of Adullam, and they're, they're unhappy with Saul. <laughs> they're saying, we need deliverance, so they're going to David. Because this guy's getting really crazy, this King Saul. So they find David, and these 400 men become David's valiant warriors. Kind of a neat story. Uh, we'll come back on that later. But I'd like to kind of end with some application about things in our lives that probably we're going to be dealing with for the rest of our life. And one of those things is what Paul calls this wretched man of sin. And at the end of Romans 7, Paul cries out as he's saying, essentially as he's trying to walk a life of faith, he's saying, the things that I want to do, I really want to do because this is what the Lord wants me to do. I don't do these things. And the very things I hate, the things I don't want to do, I find myself doing. And that's really the experience of all of us who are trying to grow in grace. Unless we're asleep at the wheel. And what Paul says essentially is, who will deliver me, hear that word deliver, who will deliver me from this body of death, this wretched man? And then with this victory cry, Paul says, thanks be unto God. It's through Jesus Christ, our what? Our Lord, the Lord of hosts. Now, Romans had a couple ways to bring you to a miserable death. One was the cross. Another way was this. If you were a criminal and the person you killed uh, was a person that needed to be uh, thought about for a little bit and the crime you committed, they would take that dead person that you killed, you're a criminal, you killed this person, and they would strap that body or chain that body to you. Oh, wretched man that I am. How would you like that if you were a criminal? You're not going to get the gas chamber, you're not going to get some kind of injection or hung or whatever, but you're going to have the person that you murdered becoming strapped to you. And what happens, you die a miserable death. You're becoming wretched with a slow death. And if Christ doesn't have victory over this sin nature of ours and the problems it brings into our life, we will be wretched people without the ability to cry out, who will deliver me from this body of death? And here Paul says it's the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, throughout the Old Testament, we see particular figures of Christ, and David is that. And as we continue to look at the life of David in, in, in future messages, remember that David, while he's the deliverer of Israel, he's a man after God's own heart. That's what his name means. Ultimately, David is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, our greatest and most wonderful Redeemer. There's a verse 
that comes out of Matthew 11:47. There's a blind man. His name is Bartimaeus. He's been blind for a long time, and as as the crowd has been pushing itself along, trying to see Jesus and hear Jesus, blind Bartimaeus began begins to cry out. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Being a Jew, he's, I want said, I want deliverance. And he keeps crying out, and some of his friends are just saying, settle down, don't, don't get so excited. Don't embarrass us, don't embarrass yourself. And blind Bartimaeus wanted healing. And he continued to cry that out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And the Bible says that Jesus stopped and when Jesus stopped, it's like you just put on your brakes and came to a fast stop, a quick stop. And when he came to a stop, he went to Bartimaeus, and of course he healed him and gave him new eyes. But daily we need to be like Bartimaeus. Did you get up this morning and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Lord, don't let me go into temptation, but deliver me from evil. Lord, please help me not to be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, each day we begin our day not always thinking about the fight of faith that we'll be having or expect to have. But Father, we today want to begin in this worship service with that cry of Bartimaeus, Oh, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on us. Deliver us from ourselves, Lord. Deliver us from the evils that come into our lives. Deliver us from selfishness, this DNA of sin that we're often consumed with. May we be like David. May we glory in you, Lord, and may we bring honor to you as the Lord of hosts, the Lord of lords, the King of kings. And dear Father, we thank you for your word today, not just a story about a young lion slayer and a giant killer, but a story about your redeeming power over your people. And may we remember today as we go forward in Christ that the gates of hell will not prevail against us as you build your church. And may this message, if it has any effect today, may it continue to be one of those bricks in building your kingdom. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.